And Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer, and we are so ever grateful for that powerful, powerful truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Oh, there's something really sweet about seeing those wonderful people whom I love and who I've partnered with in the gospel and, and been able to walk through hard things and just to see them recognize and then for us to sing that song, Let Your Kingdom Come. I was like, yes, that's what it's like, you know, as we the body continue to grow and people are serving and using their gifts and it's, it's beautiful. So that really touched me this morning. So a number of years ago, uh, my family and I attended a, a party in um, Canyon, California. You may know where Canyon, California is. So Canyon is uh, just over the hill from Berkeley. Um, and I describe Canyon as the place where people go when they start to feel like Berkeley is too conservative. They move out to Canyon. Um, and so uh, it's tucked away in the redwoods uh, right there. And um, it just sort of draws like an interesting crowd of people. And uh, this was quite a while ago. We were fairly new to the area. We didn't really know this about Canyon. We got invited to this party, so we were winding through the roads uh, up and over the hill and found ourselves there. We walked in, and there were lots of kids running around, and there was a rope swing, and it just sort of looked idyllic amidst the redwoods, and uh, we crossed the threshold into the party with uh, lots of excitement, enthusiasm, and just whoosh, the smell of marijuana, like wah, you know, you're just stepping into it. And uh, the alcohol was flowing, and people were dressed interestingly, and um, so we just sort of, I had this moment where I, I was reflecting, I was like, you know, in my prodigal days, it may not have been so unusual for me to be at this kind of a party, but there I am looking at my four little kids, you know, and my wife and thinking, is this really what I wanted to revisit with my family? And, and what to, to make it even more interesting, this was, I think, if I remember correctly, this was the weekend when we were launching Solano Community Church. So uh, this is like the Friday night, you know, and then on Sunday we're going to be launching the church. So um, we stepped in. We're there, you know. Uh, we told the kids not to breathe much, as, as little as they ha- could. Uh, and and we, we greeted the host and, uh, and then got to know some people and just spent a wonderful evening, you know, interacting. And, of course, I always love uh, to, when people say, what do you do, you know, <laughs> in that kind of a moment. I'm a pastor. What? You know, and, uh, and in fact, one really interesting thing happened is the host had had a dream that night of Jesus. And in that dream, he bowed before Jesus. And he didn't know what to make of this. And then I show up to the party and he goes, I can't believe you're here. And it launched into this conversation. And he and I have been having this conversation still. Uh, We just got together for lunch uh, at Sam's Log Cabin a few weeks ago. It's been uh, almost 18 years that we've been having this conversation together. And every time we get together, we talk about Jesus. <laughs> and oftentimes we go back to the dream and, and, and trying to make sense of it. Um, so it was a wonderful night. Whenever I think about that party or other parties that we've been invited to since then, um, and maybe you've had these experience as, experiences as well, 
I'm drawn back to this passage that we're going to look at today. Today we're going to start a new series that Pastor Paul has put together called Encounters with Jesus. And uh, this is so great because, um, you know, we've been slogging through Zechariah. I don't know if we were slogging because it was actually pretty wonderful and a lot of great things, at least, you know, from what I could tell came out uh, in the midst of that. But, you know, that was not an easy thing. And Pastor Paul's come on the scene. He's had pity on you all, on us. And we're just going to have Encounters with Jesus Right? Very simple. Today is going to be simple, a simple sermon uh, around this wonderful passage in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verse 27. So if you would open up to that, um, and here we have a, a text that talks about, you know, Jesus finding himself in a similar situation uh, to that one that I, we found ourselves in um, at that party, hanging out with people who weren't part of the religious establishment. Um, and apparently Luke, who writes, you know, the Gospel of Luke, thinks that we need to be reminded that it was precisely for such kind of people that Jesus came. It was precisely for the kind of person uh, who is maybe on the outside uh, that Jesus came. And, um, and so here we have this series. Uh, open up to Luke 5, 27 through 32. This is going to be our first sermon in this series. And it's really just simply about loving people well. This is, this is a message about loving people well. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. Open, dial up on your phone or open up in your Bible. And uh, let me read this and make a few comments as we go through it. Um, now, I, even before I start reading, I want to draw your attention to the passages. If you're looking around this text, you will see uh, maybe in the titles in your Bible that Jesus heals the sick or he casts out a man with a demon that casts out the demon, uh, or he cleanses a leper, or, or takes care of the paralytic. In other words, Jesus is ministering to the physically disabled, to the sick, to the demonized. And there's something really endearing about them because of their obvious need, right? They need help, these people that Jesus is ministering to. But this guy that we're going to look at today in this text, um, in the eyes of everyone around him, has very little uh, to endear him. And so this becomes part of, of also the unique and beautiful ministry of Jesus. So uh, verse 27 in chapter 5, after this, so healing all these people, interacting, encountering all these other people, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Now, we'll, we'll come to learn that Levi is another name for Matthew. So, so when you think about the Gospel of Matthew, this is the same guy. This is the guy who will eventually write the Gospel of Matthew. Okay, and he's a tax collector. Now, tax collecting in the day was different from the way it is today. Basically, what would happen is you'd have a ruler in a particular region, and that ruler would deputize somebody to collect all the taxes. And, and that tax collector was allowed to put any kind of surcharge that he wanted on top of the taxes that he collected. So he had to give a certain amount to the, whoever was in charge, and then he could just put a surcharge on top of that. But then it even got more complicated than that. There were too many people to collect taxes from, and there were too many different ways in which they collected taxes. So he had to have a whole army of tax collectors under him that would also collect taxes. And guess what? They would all put their surcharge on top of it as well. So it was a very corrupt system to the point where people despised the tax collectors 
because they were rich, they were wealthy, they were living off these surcharges and they would, you know, they just had freedom to gather, to take as much money as they wanted from, um, from the people. And this particular tax collector, Levi, was sitting at a booth, which probably means he was collecting tolls that would be gathered when you pass from one region to the next. So he's sitting at the booth, and when you wanted to pass on the highway, walking along, you would have to pay tax. And so Jesus presumably is walking along, and uh, he encounters this man, Levi. Now, I just want to note, it's also interesting that in the Bible, uh, you know, it, it's not totally, the, the Bible's not totally against tax collectors, despite the fact that everybody in the society probably pretty much was. When John the Baptist encountered tax collectors, he didn't say, don't collect anymore. He told them to carry out their work in an honest way. So he didn't say, don't collect anymore. He said, but generally the population was very much against collectors. One contemporary compared them to pimps, yes men, and informers. And uh, they were regarded as thugs and robbers. So you see what I mean? Uh, there's very little in, in the person of Levi to endear him to us. He was one of the despised ones. He was kind of on the outside. The Pharisees lumped the tax collectors together with sinners just generally. And you'll see that in the text as we go through it. Um, all right, so uh, 27, the second part of verse 27. Uh, and Jesus said to him, follow me. So given that background, that should be an amazing thing right out of the gate. Everybody hates the tax collectors, and here comes Jesus, and he's like, oh no, uh, I'm inviting you into friendship and relationship. Follow me. I'm inviting you. I mean, th this was scandalous, the degree to which, uh, you know, people would be offended by this, this comment, this, this invitation that Jesus makes. And leaving everything, verse 28, he rose and followed him. Now remember Jesus going along and he's calling the various people to be his disciples. Remember they were the fishermen who were at their boats and they leave their boats. And now here's Levi and he leaves his booth. So boats and booths and whatever else, they leave to follow Jesus. And, and just think about that for a moment what that really means. And think about that in relation to your own life. You know, the boats and the booths were this, really the center of how they lived, these people who left them to follow Jesus. It was their sense of identity. It was the vision they had for their lives. You know, this is what I'm going to do tomorrow. I'm going to go out and fish, or I'm going to go out and collect taxes. So it was, you know, just their days and their time wrapped up in this work that they were doing, their livelihood, the way that they took care of their families was wrapped up in the boats and the booths um, and, 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 and their sense of position within society was wrapped around this. You see all the tentacles of identity formation that layer themselves within us around the work we do, the things that are most important to us, right? And so it should be extremely surprising to us if we really wrap our heads around this that a man like Levi would rise, he would leave everything and rise and follow Jesus. That's just not a, that's not a small statement that we should just skirt over. This is amazing. Verse 29, and Levi made him, that is Jesus, a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors 
So all his tax collector buddies that everybody also hated, uh, and others reclining at table with them. And again, how many of you would, if you lost your job, turn around and throw a big party and invite everybody, right? Usually when we're, we're low on funds, uh, we wouldn't be so generous. And here we have Levi, the first thing he does, he throws a huge party, a great feast, which would have been extremely expensive, and he invites all these tax collectors to come and join him in the presence of Jesus. Verse 30, this is where it sort of pivots, and probably this is a a little bit of a time shift here. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. Remember, in the verse before, it was tax collectors and others, but the Pharisees change it to tax collectors and sinners because of the way. Now, whenever you see the word grumble, you should probably key in. Someday, if the Lord gives me time, I want to write a book on grumbling. It's, a, it's, like a, it's, it's an important word throughout Scripture, all the way through the Old Testament. And I've practiced it a lot, so I have a lot to say about grumbling. But when you see grumbling, it's like a spiritual toxin, right, has entered into the moment. And so grumbling, they grumble. And why do they grumble? They grumble because Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. He's actually having table fellowship, which in that day, as you probably know, was a strong symbol of friendship and relationship. And, and really it is today as well. Maybe, maybe we don't quite see it that way always. Perhaps it would be like, you know, if you go on vacation with somebody, it's a real strong, you know, statement about your closeness and your relationship, right? If you go vacationing with somebody else, it's kind of like that. And so they're looking at Jesus, these religious leaders, and they're saying, why are you getting yourself so intertwined with tax collectors and sinners? This great sign of friendship and hospitality. The Pharisees are interested in steering clear from those who are tainted by sin. Uh, Jesus is on a mission, alternatively, to rescue and to restore. Verse 31, and Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the irony in Jesus' statement is that there is no such thing as a righteous person, right, apart from Jesus. So, as a little tongue-in-cheek as he speaks to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees think that they are the righteous ones. But this is what's exactly keeping them from seeing their need and from coming to the physician who can heal their souls. The, the very fact that they think they don't need a physician is what's keeping them. So the ones who think that they're closest to God are actually furthest away. And then it turns out the ones who seem like they're furthest away, end up being drawn near. Isn't that beautiful? This is that reversal that happens over and over and over again in the life and the stories of Jesus. This beautiful reversal. 
The ones who think they're close are far, and the ones who seem the furthest are closest. Okay, I've got two points uh, that I want to make. The first one's kind of preliminary um, so that we can get to the second one, but I really believe if I don't make this first point, then it, it messes up the second point. We have to go through this first kind of thing and really make sure that we're straight with this before we get to where I want us to end up from this text. Um, so here's the first preliminary point, and I'm going to offend you uh, maybe some, a little bit. My point is, you are not too bad for Jesus. That's the first point. Now, some of you might bristle at that, because you say, well, why, why would you even think I would be? Right? And if that, you know, if that's how we react to that statement, then it's probably a sign that we're not quite in touch with our need of Jesus Christ. A little bit like the Pharisees. Um, so this first point, you are, you are not too bad for Jesus. We, we kind of got to sit with that for a second and grapple with it. See, the tax collectors are unlovable. And the leper inspires pity uh, because he seems to have been dealt a bad hand. But the tax collector, he has all the good cards. But he uses them for bad. He ha- he, he's been dealt a good hand but he chooses to use them for bad. And so he's not, he's not so endearing as the leper. And yet, I think it's really important for us to take a moment and identify with the tax collector. Because on some level, we've been dealt a good hand, right? We've been given breath in our lungs. We've been given bodies. We've been given time in which to inhabit this earth and to live and to interact with others. We've given brains that can process and think and make decisions. We've been given hands and and hearts. We've been given relationships. We've been given all kinds of skills to be able to do amazing things. We've been given our just our entire being. And we are not so different if we're really clear-eyed about ourselves than the tax collector. Because we've all, at some point in our lives, taken the good that we've been given and used it for less than honorable purposes. Right? If we're really honest with who we are, that's true. We're all the tax collector. We're all tax collectors in that sense. And the big question is whether or not the life we've lived will keep us on the outside or not. Uh, and if the, are the Pharisees correct would be another way to ask the question. Are the Pharisees correct that, that people like the tax collector are forever on the outside? And of course, the answer is no. Jesus eats and drinks with people like us. He pursues sinners. That's what this passage is about. In other words, you are not too bad for Jesus. And no religious person can place you on the outside and say there's no way for you to come to God. Another way to say it is that Jesus' table is open. Jesus' table is open. It's open to you, even now. Some of you, I'm going to dare to uh, imagine, have struggled mightily with this concept throughout the course of your life. You were blessed with a, a sweet conscience. And every time you do wrong, every time you do what you know 
you were not put on this earth to do what God never intended for you to do. You feel it. And some of you, there may be something in your life that you've done that is so heavy and so dark and so significant that you really, even though on some theoretical level you know that you could be forgiven for it, you still really struggle in reality to live into that grace. And so day after day, you carry this heavy, heavy burden around your neck. And it shapes the way that you think about yourself. It shapes the way that you think about your relationships, about how God might work in you and through you. It's just this cloud, this dark cloud over you. And you need to, you need to hear this message today in a, in a profound way. You need to hear the message that you are not too bad for Jesus. That Jesus opens the table to you and he's delighted to have you at the party. He wants to be with you. He's saying to you, come to the table. Not long ago, well, actually, actually, now it was some time ago, we were, this is a, a similar story to time frame as, as what I shared, the other one. The kids were little, and we were, we were in San Jose, and um, we happened to pass the, across the Winchester home. Anybody been to the Winchester house? And um, we were a little bit hurried, and we were very cheap. And so we didn't actually go into the Wester, Winchester house. Instead, we like drove around the outside and read the Wikipedia article to the kids. <laughs> so that's a freebie for those of you who are cheap and rushed. If you want to take your kids adventuring, that's what you do. Just drive around Disneyland and read the Wikipedia article. <laughs> They'll have a great time. Um, so, and, and what you learn um, about uh, Sarah Winchester, who built the Winchester house, um, is that she's the poor widow of the Winchester gun magnate, you know, who made all these guns. And, and she was so riddled with guilt over the deaths uh, caused by her husband's guns that she couldn't stop building the house 24-7 for 38 years. The house was constantly being built. She thought that by building the house, she'd appease the ghosts of the people that were killed by the guns whose manufacture she was connected to. And of course, everyone looks at somebody like Sarah Winchester and, and, and feels like, oh, she was, she was a little crazy, right? Um, but maybe she wasn't as crazy as we might think because she's an illustration of the power of guilt in our lives, and the way that it can propel us to do things that maybe are a little strange. And all of us, to some degree or another, we get caught up in trying to make up for the things we've done wrong. And we can't accept that we're, we're not too bad for God, so we, we engage in various construction projects. Right? How much of our lives is the result of us trying to do things so that we would make up for the wrong that we've done or seem better in the eyes of others and in the eyes of God, right? People can do wonderful things, but the, the, the core of it is they're trying to feel good about themselves. I actually think this is one of the fundamental spiritual toxins and poisons of the Bay Area. The reason people are so intense 
about the Bay Area code, right? Whatever that is, driving the right car, doing the right things, whatever, you know, recycling the right way. You could go on down the list. You know, you know it's intense to live in the Bay Area because there's all these unwritten codes of things. The reason why that's embedded is because people fundamentally are trying to figure out how to feel good about themselves. And you, guess what? Here's the sad news. It will never be enough. You can never do enough. And Jesus says, I know that. Come to the table. I got you. Let me take care of it for you. You don't need to have these construction. Stop trying to be good enough for me. Come to the table. And the way the text says that we come to the table is by repentance, verse 32. To repent is literally to have a change of mind. It's, it's like those booths and those boats, right? When you, when you turn, and you turn away from sin, and then you put Jesus back at the center of your life, your life, or for the first time, you put Jesus at the center of your life. You receive forgiveness, and you put Jesus at the center. And we talk about that so often as like the initial phase of a relationship with God, and it definitely is. But I think we sometimes miss that there's an ongoing process of repentance that's necessary in our lives. Because as we walk with Jesus, we come to know more and more thoroughly, more and more fully, how we fall short. And we continually come back, or, we, or, or, or you know, we're walking along, and all of a sudden we do something stupid. And, and, and so then the, the, the tension is, is that going to cause us to move away from Jesus to see ourselves as being on the outside? And so if we don't repent and receive the invitation back to the table, then that can become a spiritual toxin which leads us away from God. So this, the practice, so yes, there's that initial repentance, and if you haven't gone through that, then you know, let today be the day when you just repent of everything and you come to Jesus and throw yourself on his mercy. But then for, there's ought to be this ongoing process of repentance. It's a little bit like you know, when you, when you open up your phone and you, and you have Google Maps on there and like you're looking from a zoomed out position and then you want to see something a little more detailed so you zoom in. But as you zoom in, the thing that you want to see goes way off the map and then you have to recenter the map, right? That's what happens in our journey with Jesus. As we come to know Jesus more, as we come to know who God is more, as we come to know God's ways more, it's like we're zooming in Right? And we're seeing things that we didn't see before. And by repentance, we, we, once we see those things, it's like sliding the map over to get Jesus back in the center of our lives. It's an ongoing, precious gift that we've been given. And some of you, maybe this morning, you know, you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, and there's things that are heavy, and you keep carrying them because you just forgot you have this wonderful gift of repentance. You could actually be done with that thing you, that's heavy and you keep carrying by repenting, turning away from it, giving it to Jesus, and receiving his forgiveness, and then re- receiving the forgiveness of the community of faith. And sometimes it's really helpful to have a conversation with somebody else in that moment to kind of make that moment of repentance and renewal a fresh and alive in your life, like to to have it be more not just in your head by having somebody speak the gospel back to you. So think about that. If there's somebody in your home group that you need to confess sin to, right? So, So anyway, my point is that we are all Levi. 
and, and the message first, before we get to the other message, the first message is that we need to receive grace from God. We need to have that moment like Levi did. Then if we get that posture right, see the, the thing is if we don't do that, then we come at people like the Pharisees thinking that we are better than, that we are more righteous than because we went to church last week or whatever it is, right? And so we've got to stay true to what's actually going on here and that is that we are Levi and we need Jesus. Then we can go to the next point. Your friends are not too bad for Jesus. This is what Levi teaches us. This is what Jesus teaches us. And this is what we want to live into more and more as a community, especially during this crazy moment in history where we are. It's just so wonderful to have this opportunity. You know, if you have a restaurant that you love, what do you do? You tell people about it. If there's a grocery store that just popped up and you're like, oh, they have this, you should go there and buy it. It's wonderful. And you just spontaneously do that, right? If there's a movie that you saw, you're like, you can't wait to go to a party and tell everybody about the movie you just saw and make sure that they see it. And, and when, when somebody's doing that, you can see the excitement in their eyes. You can see the joy about this experience that they had that they want you to have as well. You know, if you've had a vacation spot, you know, that you've gone to and it changed your life, you come back and you say, you got to go there. It's wonderful. This is natural human behavior to share what has blessed us, what we're excited about. And yet for some reason, when it comes to spiritual things, we get all shy, right? We get all shy about it. Oh, that's, we can't talk about that. Even though, you know, yeah, you went to that restaurant and it was great, but what has Jesus done for you? What has Jesus done for you? I mean, so, I mean, this is everything. Why do we get shy about sharing that? And, I, I, you know, that's not a, I get shy too. So anyway, we got to take some lessons from Levi here. It's a principle. We share good things with friends. All right. Levi, he doesn't fall prey to that, that shyness. Um, he doesn't get shy when it comes to sharing his newfound faith. What does he do? He throws a big party and he invites lots of friends. Uh, and wouldn't you love to be part of that party there? I mean, could you imagine, you know, you're meeting people. Like, what's your name? Oh, my name's Jesus. <laughs> you know? I mean, yes. This is the opportunity that he sees and, and, and just grabs. And I bet it was messy, like that party I talked about we were at. And I bet there were some great conversations that took place and probably some lives that were changed in addition to Levi's. So why don't we do what Levi does or what Jesus does? Why do we fail, you know, what's the, what's the hiccup with us? Why do we get hung up when it comes to sharing the message of God's grace and forgiveness with people that are close to us? Um, and it seems to me that there are several obstacles that typically keep us from sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with others that Levi doesn't fall prey to. And so... Just real quickly, let's run through those. First of all, he's quick. He can go home, doesn't seem like, and say, you know, next year I'm going to throw a party for Jesus. And Right? It happens right now. He throws a great feast ASAP and invites everybody. He's quick. And I think a lot of times when we have these opportunities, we get very strategic in a negative way. 
and we're like, okay, let me stretch. And, and maybe the opportunity is just, just do it now. Just act now. Just take advantage of the opportunity you have now. Second, he's generous. I love this. This is such a challenge to me. Uh, it just as I, I think one of the conversations I've been having with Jesus is how to be more of a generous person, not only even in just financially, but just in my own giving of myself. How to be a generous, and I love how generous you know, math, uh, Levi is. Um, it's amazing to me that he throws this party. He's just quit his job, so he doesn't know income, uh, but he throws this huge party uh, for, for all his friends and everybody who would have been part of his community. And thirdly, he's loving. He's loving. Now, let me, let me just unpack that a little bit because maybe that seems like an obvious thing. But let's just think about the social dynamic at work with Levi in this moment. These are his peers. And he has had literally a come to Jesus moment. And he is exp- he's going to invite them into that same opportunity and that same moment. And, you know, they respect him probably. Nobody else respects him, but these people probably respect him. Um, And there's a potential um, that his association with Jesus. We know that Jesus, you know, had a a kind of a, you know, love him, hate him impact, you know, as he moved through the world. And so there's there's a possibility that, you know, this association with Jesus could cost him Levi. It could cost him something. It could even cost him some of these friendships. But I just love that he's willing to risk that. He's willing to risk friendship for the sake of love. Because, again, when we boil it down to its logic, the most loving thing to do is to share what's good with the people that, we, that, we are, that are around us. And if Jesus is, is such a good thing, which he is, then the most loving thing for us to do is to share Jesus with the people that are around us, come what may. And we think mistakenly too often that the loving thing is to withhold. But that's not true. If, if everything that we've been talking about in this book is actually true, if we really believe that the loving thing is to risk even the friendship and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So he's loving, not in a superficial way, but in a deep and profound way. Uh, in a way that's willing to take risks. And, and that's a model for us. Fourth, he believes. Can't you imagine the temptation he would have, you know, to look around uh, the various uh, people that were at that party and say, oh, that guy's never going to believe in Jesus, right? <laughs> that guy's never coming... And he doesn't seem to be stressed about that. He just gets them all into the room with Jesus. He just brings them all into the room with Jesus. And I think what happens with, with us is we put people in the impossible category before Jesus even has a chance. We put people in the impossible category before Jesus even has a chance. Um, so I want you to do this mental experiment. Pick the person you know who'd be the most unlikely person, candidate, to repent and come to faith. Okay, like right now, just think of all the people that you know, who would be the most unlikely person ever to come 
into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I, I want you to imagine that person coming to faith. Think about that. You know from Scripture that all things are possible with God. So that's not a crazy thing to think. But we need to push ourselves to, to not put people in the impossible category. We have no idea what they've been through. We have no idea where their life is going. We have, only God knows. Our job is to continue to believe and to trust. With God, all things are possible. It was possible for Saul. Saul was killing Christians to come to faith and to become Paul, right? So it's possible for, for anyone. And then lastly, he's not judgmental. He could have lifted his nose to the people of his past and said, I know Jesus now, so I'm done with you all. But he didn't. He didn't adopt the heart of the Pharisees. It seems like he carried with him, at least in this moment, and, and, and then through the, the, the gospel you know, that he wrote. And I mean, obviously, he carried this moment of his own desperate need with him through the whole process. And that's what undercuts that sense of judgmentalism, right? When we carry a, a live and current sense of our own desperate need for Jesus into our relationships, then we can, we can not be Pharisees as we love the people around us. So there's Levi. He left everything. He gave it all Jesus, you know. And so the message for us is if we want more in our relationship with Christ, we want to go deeper, you know, leave more, leave our delay tactics, you know, leave our lack of generosity towards uh, the people around us, leave our self-protection uh, and love even when it's risky, um, leave our small faith behind and dive in and get messy with people who maybe are far from God. You know, uh, get together with your home group and throw a big Matthew party. Invite all your non-Christian friends and just see what happens, right? Walk into your workplace with a different mindset of what's possible, you know. Um, God has placed you in the lives of these people. And God has placed you in the lives of these people. And that's not by chance. That's not by chance. So take a moment to imagine yourself living the, the call of Matthew this morning. You know, there's a lot of reevaluating that is happening as we move out of this pandemic. And some of it's spiritual. Some people are reevaluating their spiritual lives. And it might just be that you are God's ambassador for that precise moment in somebody's life. You are the Levi inviting them to the party where Jesus is there with the table wide open. Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to be faithful in this? Not because we're trying to be better or anything, but because we've just been so blessed to know that the, the power of grace in our lives, the freedom of grace in our lives, the joy of grace in our lives. Thank you for that. Lord, help us to be generous with it. I pray that there would be all kinds of creative ideas that would come out of today as people have conversations in their home groups. How can we be like Levi together? How can we bring people to the table? So help us in that great work we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.